Today, the message is titled Stand Firm. Uh, my format today is going to be very, I've never ever preached a sermon like this. Uh, what we're going to be doing is, it's not me offloading work, but I just feel as though we need to read some scripture today. We've been reading through the book of Acts and this entire New Testament church, how it gathered and what it did when it gathered, in my estimation, it kind of looked like this. I don't think it was like masses of people, but it was just a, a circle that kept on growing, layer after layer. And when they gathered in a home, like what we'll read about today, I think what they did is what we're going to do today, read scripture. There was explaining, there was preaching, there was teaching, and there was all of that. And I think a lot of the teaching happened midweek. Like it happened when they were just eating together and talking about the passages, and they were teaching that way. And when they gathered on a Sabbath, a lot of what they did was they opened up a scroll, which was the Old Testament that we have at, uh, currently at their time, and they opened up a scroll and they just started reading the scroll. It's exactly what Jesus did when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and he found the place where it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he began to read it and then offer a few insights or commentary based on the reading. And what you find in the New Testament churches, there was a lot of reading and memorization of God's Word. And what I, I want to do today, what I hope happens, is that in your mind that there is some sort of a connection that is made today. That when you go home and read the Bible on your own, you begin to see the Bible in real life. Now, how many of you love movies? Raise your hand. Movies. What was the last movie you saw, Deepak? Justice League. What was the last movie? David? Uh, skip. Joanne? <laughs> Baby Boss. Hey, my kids would love that one, right? Now, when you think about movies, think about in the eyes of the director or the producer of it, the, the, the screenplay writer, right? If you think about what they're trying to accomplish, they're trying to say to a group of people that will be sitting in a theater to literally envelop them into a story and into a lifeline, a context through a two-dimensional screen, right? And when we read the Bible, something similar has to happen. That you need to be able to read it as a living narrative. When you think about your family history, like somebody objectively comes up to you and say, hey, um, can you tell me about uh, your, your family history from maybe your life, two generations or three generations? And if you know as much, you can recall it. You can talk about maybe what your parents told you, the few little things your grandparents told you. And you can recall your family history and somebody can kind of listen to that and say, hey, I appreciate it. But if you think about it and step back for a moment, if an entire movie was being played of your family history, there is so much more flesh and life happening. There is so much more of the peaks and valleys and the emotion that is wrought in each and every story. And as we read the New Testament, something very similar has to happen. And often what I find is that when we read the Bible, we take a verse or a cluster of verses called a passage, and we simply try to take a lesson from that. Like, uh, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And we're like, okay, that's my verse for today. It's like I open up the Bible app. What's the verse of the day, right? And a lot of times we, you, you, you share it on your social media. This is my verse of the day that I'm sharing. And too often we kind of cut it before and we cut it after and we say, hey, this is 
the verse for my day and I paste it on my day. But as much value as that has, it does the the Bible, the, the passage, a disservice when I cut it before and I cut it at the end. And I only take that little section and I say, what do I get out of this today? There is some power in that because, I, of course, there's timeless truth in every verse and passage. But I need to train myself to be able to read the Bible as a historical narrative of something that has happened in real life, that unfolded within an actual group of people that looked like this gathering, right? And so when they gathered, they were looking at each other. They were gathering and singing praises. When Jesus was breaking bread, he was reclining at the same table and there was a certain environment that was unfolding. And here we learn lessons and principles that gives so much more depth than if we just read it at face value and we just kind of took its passage or verse and we say, hey, this is the verse for my day. And so that's what I want to hope to accomplish today. I I want there to be a a connection in your heart and mind that when you read the Bible, that there is something that is happening in the undercurrent that needs to be unearthed. So in Acts, I'm going to stand up a little bit and kind of off and on I'll stand up. Um, Acts chapter 17 We'll read uh, the first nine verses of that first. And this will give the context for the the main passage that we're going to talk about. And this is the longest main passage of my preaching career. Five chapters of scripture. All right, we'll see how we get through that, okay? Acts 17, first flip there. Okay, the first nine verses. I'll go ahead and I'll read this. Now when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city that we're going to be focusing on today. Okay, Where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the, whole, uh, upset the world have come here <coughs> also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities uh, who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. We'll stop there. In the outline that I gave you for today, I ask a question. What's significant about Paul's preaching at the synagogue? You look at the first cluster of verses in chapter 17. Like, what's significant about what Paul was doing? Right? He was reasoning with them from the scripture, it says. Right? He was explaining. The word explain means to, to set plain, to actually set it before you, as if I put an actual statue in the middle of the room right here that everyone could see. It, it's that, that. Literally, it means to set before. And so what Paul is doing, he went into probably a very similar setting. I don't know how many people were in the room at the time, but regardless, it was a similar setting. It was in a house, most likely the house of Jason. 
And as Jason uh, would uh, be able to, to invite as however many people to his house, or whether it was at a synagogue or at a particular day, whatever the setting was, Paul came forth and he said from Scripture, taking the Old Testament as we have it, and he began to explain from there that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He began to explain why he had to suffer. He talked about sin, creation most likely from the story of Adam, and probably went forward to the story of David. Right? And from the, the house of David would come a Messiah or a Christ or an anointed one. And he explained from there that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the one promised that he was the one through whom we can have eternal life or salvation. And it talked about how many people believed. Right, There were uh, some leading women, some Greeks. And it wasn't a small group of people that believed in Jesus over those three Sabbaths. And then the same thing happened as happened in our previous reading in chapters like 13 and so forth. What happened in Pisidian Antioch or Iconium or Lystra. Remember what happened there? right? When Paul went on his first missionary journey and uh, they started following after him and chasing after him and they stoned him, dragged him out of the city, thought that he was dead and the disciples witnessed a miracle of him coming to life. He goes to the next city and he preaches again and they follow him where he goes and just stirring up the crowds. The same thing happens here where he's at on his second journey, that there are some jealous folks. These Jews were, were like, man, who does this guy think he is? Right? And you read that, you can't just pass by it so quickly. I mean, do you remember what it feels like to, to not be well received by a large group of people? Have you ever walked into a room and the majority of the people didn't want you there? How pleasant does that sound? Now think about a city for a second. Now, I mean, like, I mean, we've all heard of like bullying in schools or in, even in the in the workplace, right? This is what's happening. I mean, yeah, he had a group of people that were supportive of him, but there was a growing multitude of people in the city that were being disgusted. They were like, "We want nothing to do with you. You're not welcome here." And not only was there a growing multitude within the crowd, the leaders of this city, they were being swayed by this and saying, wait a minute, there is a commotion here and we're not happy that our city is being held in such a, a chaotic mess. And actually, who's instigating this? Who's at the center of this? And they themselves, through the instigation of the mob, begin to point to Paul and Silas. And so now the, the welcome party, man, it's, it's gone. It's, they're like, we're not welcome here anymore. This is the environment of what's happening in Thessalonica. And so the message of Paul is very significant. And then we come to th this crowd. What are they saying about Paul and Silas? You know, verse 6, right? At the end of verse 6 of chapter 17. These men who've upset the world have come here, right? Other translations say that they've turned the world upside down. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? In a certain way, I think it's an unintended compliment. Think about it. For, like These guys, their message has flipped the paradigm. Like People are living different. Their values have changed. They're not living for the same thing they did yesterday. Like Literally, it is flipped upside down. That's what they're saying. I mean, God willing, people would talk about the church like that today. Like, 
God willing, people would talk about our church like that. Think about it for a second. Like, the message of the gospel is revolutionary. I mean, Jesus didn't come as a teacher, did he only? Not like just a mere teacher eloquently talking about the Old Testament. He came and he flipped the paradigm of belief. And he became preaching the kingdom of heaven. And what he said to people really turned things upside down. He would talk to, like, you know the famous story of that rich young ruler, right? When uh, he encountered a man as he was going someplace and a guy comes up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus proceeds to go, um, why do you call me good? But okay, if you want to know, okay, great. Uh, follow the law, you know, uh, honor your parents, don't commit adultery, you know, don't covet. And it goes on and on and on. And this rich young ruler, as he's hearing Jesus' response, he's Ticking them all off. Yeah, that's me. I did that. Don't worry. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And say, yeah, that's me. Everything you just said, I'm doing right now. And then Jesus feels compassion for the man, he says. And he says, well, there's actually something that I left out that's key. And there's one thing you lack. And he begins to say, I want you to sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. And it says that that statement, his face fell. His countenance fell because he realized what that meant. He had a lot of things. And the paradigm of Jesus was not just be a good person. The paradigm of Jesus was life commitment. Because that's what the selling of possessions represented, didn't it? It represented, are you serious about following me? Do you want to just kind of tick off some things that you can do on your own? Or do you really want to follow me? And the message that he had for that young man was the kingdom of heaven, the base of it, the focus of it, what it stands for, what it's going to, is completely different from what you think it is. There's a parable, he said. There was a certain rich man. He had a field that was producing an abundance of crop, it said, right? Abundance of crop. And he's thinking to myself, what should I do? And he says, ah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the old barn and I'm going to build a big, huge barn and I'm going to store everything that my land is producing and then I'm going to just kick back and just relax and enjoy the fruits of my labor and just take it easy for the rest of my life. And then the council comes to this rich man in this parable. Oh, that's actually a wicked way to think. Don't you know that your life can be asked of you at this very moment? Don't be rich in the world. Be rich towards God. And in the parable, he's pointing at the same thing. Now you can go to the Beatitudes when he talks about the blessed people in life. And that list of blessed people goes contrary to what we hear in the marketplace, doesn't it? When you think about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted, that's not a message that is commonplace in our world. Right? Even in that day it wasn't commonplace. You looked at those folks that Jesus was describing in the Beatitudes of chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew, that's a paradigm shift. And so when these city authorities, when this mob of people in the city of Thessalonica begin to assess that these disciples of Jesus are turning the world upside down, that is an accurate statement. They didn't intend it to be a compliment, but actually it is. Right? And so I think it challenges us. Like, what's my paradigm? Like, when my coworkers look at me, do they see a sense of radical followership of Jesus? That, am I just kind of blending in to what everybody else wants in Orange County or L.A. County and SoCal, right? Are my goals the same as my colleagues? Or is my vision in life, my worldview, my values, is there a differentiation? I think it challenges us, this right here. 
That the reception of Paul and Silas isn't something to be sneered at, to say how they walked into a city and they weren't well-liked. No, wait, we should, as Christians should be well-liked wherever we go. Now, of course, you can twist that, and there is some truth to that, that we need to have a good reputation amongst God and man. There are scriptures to, to, to support that. But this reception of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and whoever else was there, there is something there to be followed. That the message that we have must, in a way, turn things upside down. But if you think of it properly, it actually, it's turning it actually right side up. It's all about perspective. And so I want to kind of challenge us there. Okay? And so this is the setting, right? If you, you know in your, your uh, little, um, I have in your, where is my little thing? There it is. In the, your sermon outline, on the back side, I put a map for you. Did you all have that? You all have that? Okay, on the back side, I, I put this map for you. And this is the second missionary journey of, of Paul. We've been reading through this, right? They were dispatched, and they go from uh, there, and they visit a lot of the churches that were planted on the first journey. And they go to Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And that's all kind of all there, uh, just south of that, that Asia little tag there, right? And from there, after they left Antioch, remember how we read Paul wanted to go to certain uh, cities in Asia Minor or in these places, and, and the Spirit of God stopped them, it said, right, in the chapters that we read. And he stopped them twice. And after that, a vision is shown of a man of Ma Macedonia saying, come over here. And Paul, understanding that this was from God, goes and makes a beeline, and he goes from Troas, and he goes straight to Macedonia, right, to Philippi. And there he finds, remember, that, that, that place of prayer by the riverbed, by the riverside, right? And he doesn't know where to go, and says, wait a minute, actually, uh, you know, it's kind of customary for there to be places of prayer and places like this. Let's try there. And so he's in Philippi, and he goes there, and he finds a group of women praying, and there, Lydia's saved, her, that salvation message goes to her household, right? And it, he's preaching there, and he's jailed unjustly in Philippi. We read about that. And the jailer is about to commit suicide because God sent an earthquake and opened up all the cells, and, and they're all set free. Paul stops him, and the jailer is saved that night, goes from suicide to salvation, and takes that salvation to his house. His entire household is baptized and saved, and they follow after Jesus. They go back to the prison the next morning, right? And then from there, after the persecution comes, get out of our city. The plea comes, right? And so after visiting Lydia's home, they then send off and they go from Philippi, and that's our passage in 17, Acts 17. They go to, through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and they land in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they spend three weeks Three weeks talking about Scripture. Three weeks talking, having fellowship, eating, working diligently, doing all these things. And something comes out in the book of Thessalonians. Can you flip there? First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. As... I read 1 Thessalonians. I want you to follow intently in your own Bibles. And I'll stop in certain places and I'll slow down my reading maybe. But hopefully you begin to see the story as Paul felt it. You begin to see why he wrote this letter. 
that it wasn't just a random letter to a random church that he planted and he didn't think about anymore. That the letter of Thessalonians, that these letters that he wrote meant something to him. That in his heart he was dying to be with them. But because he couldn't, he did the next best thing. He sent a letter penned by his hand through the messenger of Timothy. Okay. Paul and Silvanus. Silvanus is Silas, right? That's Silas. He was a part of that second missionary journey. And remember Timothy? He was taken along that journey, that young man who was uncircumcised. And Paul said to him, hey, you know what? You just better be circumcised. I know it's kind of, uh, you don't have to do it. But you know what I'm saying? If you want to be productive in your ministry, just get it done and follow. And he took Timothy, right? So Timothy's included in this letter as one who's greeting this church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in my mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, this choice of you, for our gospel does not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I want to stop at verse 6. Think about what they did to Jason and the brethren there. When Paul and Silas wasn't found, they took the next best thing. They dragged the, the owner of the house, Jason, and some of the leading believers, and he dragged them out and they began to persecute them before the city authorities. That's what we read in Acts chapter 17, right? And Paul is writing this letter knowing how much persecution they are still enduring. Because once Paul and Silas and Timothy left Thessalonica, the persecution didn't stop. They're still in an infant church. Paul only had three weeks with them. And now they are apostleless. They don't have the apostle Paul with them at the church. They don't have Silas or Timothy as, as mentors in the faith. And now Jason and all of the leaders there in Thessalonica having only three short weeks with them are now having the task of forming this church, of building this church. And like, what do we do? We've got people breathing down our necks, wanting us to close and to shut our doors. But we know the, the message of truth that was preached to us and we want to follow after God and we want to keep this going. What do we do? And Paul is thinking about them all of the time. My mind has not stopped thinking about you, he writes. That's his greeting. That's not just a, a cordial greeting, right? It's not just like something to butter them up. Like, hey, hey, you know, th hey, I'm thinking about you. It wasn't that. It's like, man, I was literally dying to be with you. I'm thinking about you all the time. I'm praying to God. I want God's grace and peace to be with you. It's a real heartfelt statement. Because I know you're being persecuted. But I want you to know you're imitating us as well as Jesus. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Right? Think about that example now. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. I mean, if you think about the type of faith and the type of church that begins to spark a revival, 
It's the faith that can endure suffering and hardship. And we see Paul mentioning that. Because of your tribulation, because of those city authorities breathing down your neck, because everyone is giving you pressure to disband, I want you to know that there are churches all across Macedonia, Achaia, and even further than that, that are hearing about the church in Thessalonica. You're a young church. You didn't have a steadfast leader all this time. But I want you to know your perseverance means something. People are hearing about it. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered, talking about Philippi, right, and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also of our own lives. I mean, think of that. Because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs performs its work in you, who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of uh, your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. And you see his heart coming out. I'm... I'm here in Berea. That's the the next city he was in. He goes from Berea to Athens. And the entire time in these different cities, he's thinking about the Christians in Thessalonica. 
and he wanted to go back, but for whatever reason, the road was blocked, and he couldn't get there. And then it goes on. Therefore, chapter 3, when we could endure it no longer, when I just couldn't hold myself back, I know I couldn't be with you, and so I couldn't endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. I want to stop right there. As Paul sends this letter through the hand of Timothy, he's thinking, what's going to come back? It's not the days of instant messaging. And he's waiting for Timothy to come back to hear what was going on, what is going on in this new church. And finally, when that door opens and Timothy walks through, some weeks, months, I don't know how long later, and Paul hears those words, they're doing fine. Don't worry. Can you just sense the, the weight and the anxious moments just lifted? All of the heartache just melted. Ah, it's exactly what we were praying for. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that the tempter didn't come and disrupt that work over there. I'm so glad they didn't give up because of the pressure or persecution. I thank my God day and night now for you. And this is what he's writing. This is how valuable that young church was. This is how important it was for that church to keep on going. This is what comes out in Paul. He's ah, okay. One casualty. All right, that's, I mean, uh, there were other churches that were planted. It's okay. This isn't it. Paul was saying, what happens in your young faith community makes a big difference. And he's overjoyed by this. And actually, verse 8 and verse 9 and 10 these, uh, of chapter 3, there's a hinge here now. I, I want you to begin to see the hinge. From chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, when Paul says, I want you to stand firm, to complete what is lacking in your faith, now Paul begins to transition. This is now the reason why he's writing this letter. He's, he remembers this young faith community that has now survived the early persecutions and now is beginning at the threshold of wanting to thrive and grow. And Paul, he's thinking about what does this church need? What does this young church need to go forward and to do really well for the Lord? That's why he pens this letter. He couldn't go there and teach it himself, and so he pens the letter and he sends it. And now, from chapter 3, verse 11 onward, we begin to see 
the plea and the teaching of a fatherly man, of a person who wants to impart spiritual wisdom to a church so that it could grow the right way. And you, me, us, we would do ourselves a great service as a church if we read chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians over and over again this week to get it deep down in our spirit to know, wait, this message, chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is how you grow as a Christian. This is how you grow a young church. This is what needs to take place. If you would read this four or five times this week, these two chapters, you would do yourself well. But we'll start from verse 11 of chapter 3. Now, okay, so now. He's turning a corner. I want you to know I'm so thankful you're still alive and kicking. But now, now. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that you may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Finally, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Don't be content. Keep on growing. Keep on going. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a means of growing in grace. It is about growing in faith, in stature, in maturity, of growing more holy in God. That sanctification words means Christian spiritual growth. You can kind of think of it that way. Salvation is the beginning point, but then it's a progression of growth. We don't become perfect at salvation. Perfection is something we achieve at heaven, but sanctification is the road to perfection. It is that growth that is constant and steady. And he's saying, this is God's will for you. Don't be content where you are. Don't stop growing. I know you love one another and people are saying good things about you, but don't stop there. Excel more. God's will for you as a young group of believing Christians is your sanctification. That is, that you, and he begins to outline sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And he begins to say also that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting men, but the God who gives this Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Don't be satisfied. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, 
to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be any need. This is about the industriousness of the believer, the, the, the lifestyle of excellence, of diligence in the heart of the believer that Paul said he modeled with, uh, with them while he was there. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about the, those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And he begins to talk about Jesus is coming back, right? Verse chapter 5. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should, not over, uh, should overtake you, uh, you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
that section, particularly in chapter 5, verse 12 and onward to the end, is something that I think we all should meditate on. Take note of what he says line by line. And take it to heart. That this is what a father in the Spirit is speaking to a young church to say, if you want to grow, if you want to honor the Lord, here's a blueprint for how to do it. And I think this makes a beautiful, rounded picture to what we've been reading in Acts chapter 17. Like we've been reading about these churches being born, right? Like wherever he went, Antioch, Iconia, Iconium, Lystra, he goes to, to Philippi there in Thessalonica. He's now in Berea. He's going to go to Athens. And he's going to all of these cities and churches are being birthed. And you can take that and think so lightly of that. But as Paul pens these letters, predominantly in the New Testament, it's, it's the letters of Paul to churches. When he couldn't go back, he pens these letters and he begins to speak words of life into them. And so my hope today is this, that as you read, maybe particularly the New Testament letters, you begin to see it in context of how it was formed. You begin to see the churches, and we've been going through the book of Acts, and just by reading how the progression of these churches being formed in these journeys of Paul, just by reading how this is happening, it should really inform. So when you read the book of Philippians, go back to the book of Acts. What happened in Philippi? When you read the, the books of Corinthians, go back. What happened in Corinth? When you go to the, to the letter of Ephesians, go back when Paul was planting the church in Ephesus. What did he say in his farewell address the last time he was there? Because all of that informs the letter. Right? Just like when we write a letter to somebody, or no, you don't write letters anymore. When you send an email or a text message to somebody, right? That there's a context to that communication. That's what the book of Acts provides for us. And so I hope you begin to read the New Testament letters a little differently. And I hope you begin to appreciate the context the, books, the book of Acts gives us through these particular letters. My application, I've not given you one today. I gave you a blank circle, a square, right? A rectangle on your sermon cards. Um, your application from this message or reading, whatever you want to call it, I want to leave that with you, okay? I want you to just take some time in reflection later and think, what's, what's my main takeaway from the, the letter of 1 Thessalonians or this passage in Acts, something that you've been hearing today, right? And what we did today is I offered a little bit of commentary, but mostly we just read Scripture, right? And so there should be a lot. If there's a verse that stuck out to you in what we read, write that down. Let it sink in your heart, right? And know the context of how it was delivered, okay? As we close, we're going to sing a song. Uh, one of the songs that we sang earlier today, Consuming Fire. And then my close for today will be for us to pray together as a group. And I think that's what the early church did a lot. They prayed for one another. And Paul talks about that in the letter here, right? As they prayed for one another, right? And so we're going to finish with the song. We'll take some time to pray for one another. And I really want you to take some time to think about what is your main takeaway from our Bible reading today. Let's, let's, let's sing this song. <laughs>